Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. By a quick show of hands, how many of you have ever been to Costco? Okay, that's what I figured. Almost everybody. My kids love going to Costco. And they love going to Costco uh, for the same reason I love going to Costco and the same reason many of you do, the samples, right? The samples are great. And Costco puts out those samples because they understand a pretty basic rule of life that there are some things, in fact, there are actually many things in life that are better experienced than explained. I mean, think about it. How many times have you been explaining a book that you've recently read or a movie you've just seen and you're, you're kind of trying to get across and at one point you're just like, I, you just, you've got to read it or you've got to see it. Or if you've ever been on a trip to the Grand Canyon or you're showing pictures of some beautiful landscape of a hike you've been on, the pictures never do it justice, right? Food is probably, uh, seems like one of the hardest things to explain. I mean, to describe the texture, the taste of honey and the sweetness of it, is infinitely inferior to just giving someone a spoonful of honey and then experience it for themselves. Well, that's why Costco puts out these samples because it's easier to sell food than that's been experienced than it is to explain. I mean, if you read the ingredients on the back of a box, that really doesn't tell you what it's going to taste like in your mouth, right? It tells you almost nothing because half the things you can't even pronounce. Well... More than food, books, movies, or feelings, people are by far better experienced than explained. For me to tell you how wise and caring and awesome and lovely my wife is, or how fun and energetic and full of life my kids are, that's one thing. But for you to come over to my house and interact with them in an afternoon or an evening, that's a totally different experience, right? Well, we're going to look at a passage this morning that is not going to attempt to explain to us who God is, because God is a person, and like other people, he is better experienced than explained. And so this passage, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but this passage is kind of putting out a sample for us. It's inviting us to experience God, to get to know him. And so if you would open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 34... Uh, It's in your worship folder as well, and they will be on the screen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, but we're really going to just zoom in on verse 8. But I think it'd be helpful for us just to have some of the context. So um, let me pray before we actually open uh, and start reading. Uh, Father, I am uh, just painfully aware this morning of how dependent I am on you, and it's true all the time, but I'm just feeling a special sense of it. And so, God, I ask that as we open your word, as we um, examine what it says, would you please send your spirit to speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought Yahweh and he answered me. 
He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. So you can kind of get a feel for the psalm just in those 10 verses. There's more to it. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see there's more verses to it. Uh, And you you can see clearly in the context that, that David, who wrote this, has experienced the goodness of God. He's experienced the the refuge, the protection, the intimacy of God. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just try to explain more and more about his own experience. He invites you. That's what verse 8 is. Oh, taste and see. He invites you and me, the readers of this divine text, to experience for ourselves to see if God is good. And he uses the metaphor of food, which is better experienced than explained, he uses the metaphor of food to help us kind of wrap our minds around it. He compares Yahweh to a tasty and delicious meal. And this, I don't mean to sound irreverent, but I mean, if David were kind of maybe talking today, you, you might almost say, faith in Yahweh is like eating a delicious cheeseburger or a well-marinated steak. Again, I'm not trying to sound irreverent, but he's the one comparing Yahweh to food here. If this is your thing, maybe it's he's a really great salad. But the point is, whatever the food, whatever the food, the point is that we don't become convinced of God's goodness primarily in our heads, but in our gut, in, in the core of our being. Now, don't hear a false dichotomy here. I'm not saying that logic and reason and thinking doesn't have any part to play in our faith. It certainly does, and the Bible has many places uh, that appeal to that side of our um, being. But David here sees that God is better experienced than explained, and if you want to know him, if you want to know what he's like, you can't just be told. You have to experience it for yourself. You have to actually put your faith in him and trust him and see that he will come through, and David is convinced that if you do this, that if you place your faith in him, if you trust him, if you believe what he says and put your hopes in him, that he's gonna come through for you. David's convinced of it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, uh, the word good here, in Hebrew, it's just like our English word good, in the sense that it encompasses a lot of different concepts. It encompasses the concept of beauty, That person's good looking, right? It encompasses the sense of enjoyable. That was a good movie. That was a good conversation. It encompasses the concept of high quality. This is a good car, meaning it's well made, right? The word good encompasses all of these ideas of beauty, loveliness, joy, um, high quality, practical, economic benefit. And God is good in every sense of the word. He's pulling everything that you can communicate with the word good into the person of God. David, in another place in the Psalms, will say, apart from you, I have no good thing. 
Later in the Bible, in James, it'll say he is the father of lights. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. Everything good that you and I experience in life comes from God, receives the quality of goodness that it has from God, whether people recognize it or not. Now, what this means is that God is not simply good like spinach or cough syrup, which you have to endure the horrible taste of because you know it's good for you in the long run. He is good for you in the long run, but the point is that he's actually enjoyable. Taste and see. You can could, you could almost read this as taste and see that the Lord is delicious. He, he's inviting you to experience the goodness of God here. And sure, there, there will be times when following the Lord is difficult. There will be times when you're called to do things that are uncomfortable and hard. You'll need to repent of sins that you're committing. You'll need uh, to just accept that things didn't turn out the way you wanted or expected, even if it wasn't any fault of your own. But even in those moments, there's an undergirding love and affection for God, a trust in his goodness and his character that sustains it. Now, it is a simple but profound truth that God is good. And if you've been around the church for a while, one thing you might notice is that we like to nuance this truth. And this is not a bad thing, but we'll say things like he's good as he defines good, not as we define it. He's good from his point of view, not our point of view. He's not like good in the sense that he's going to let you have every piece of candy in the store because ultimately that's not good for you. And those are healthy and good nuances that you might need to think through. But let's just keep it at its most simple, basic statement. God is good. And just because it's simple does not mean it, it lacks any power. The goodness of God is at the very heart of our faith. And it is the antidote to one of the most powerful and potent lies that every single person in this room believes. We, we just buy our own nature, and because life is tough, don't believe he's good. And the Bible tells us that there's a spiritual being out there, an adversary, an accuser, who has made it his goal in life to tell you lies about God. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And if we're going to boil his most basic lie down to a few sentences or a few words, his would be God is not good. And that's not everything that he says. That's not the cause of every bit of pain in your life, but it's a lot of it. Everything that we believe in terms of the badness of God, it's some variation of God is not good. Now, the fact that you're here on a Sunday morning, almost no one would probably say that out loud. Usually, it's posed much more subtly. This accuser is a master of subtlety. Often, it's posed in the form of a question. Does God really want this? Is he really expecting that of you? That's tough. How could he allow that to happen? How can there be good out of this situation? See, the statement is never God is not good. It's usually a question. Isn't that how he does it with Eve? Did God really say not to eat any food? You see what he's doing? He's questioning the goodness of God. He's causing you to start believing, causing us to start believe, to believe that God is not good. 
Now, it might not be that we outright believe that God is not good. We might believe this partially. God is kind of good. You might think about him like he's kind of over here. Think about him like a, like a spice in your cupboard. That he's one of several ingredients that you put into your soup of life and he's one of the things that can make it good. I'll add God, healthy family, decent job, good house, mix that all together, and then I've got good. As opposed to seeing God as all of goodness in himself. Do you see what I'm saying? All of these are variations of the lie that God is not good. And let me just be as as frank as I possibly can. These are lies. God is not evil. God is not partially good. God is not apathetic to your pain or to evil in the world. He does not take joy in injustice. He is not vindictive. He doesn't break his promises. He never lies. God is absolutely, wholly, utterly good. And David says, taste and see for yourself. He is good. This is a critical, not a, this is the critical foundation for anyone who would want to be a disciple of Jesus. We have to believe that he's good. We have to be convinced of it. And I understand this will be a lifelong struggle. This adversary has lots of ammo. Life is tough. Bad things happen. Some of it's your fault, some of it's not. And so you're going to be tempted to believe over and over that he's not good. But at the end of the day, a disciple comes back to this truth. God is good. How are we going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength unless we're convinced of this? How can we be so utterly and wholly committed to God in the way that Jesus wants us to be and tells us to be the way that we want to be if we're not convinced that he is totally good? If he's anything less than that, you can't. But people try all the time, don't they? And what you end up with is a nominal and shallow faith built on a cracked and crumbling foundation. It's not hard to find a deconversion story, or as some might call it, a testimony of the atheist, their story of maybe growing up in church or experiencing belief and faith for a while until something happened. And I'm not going to try to downplay anybody's hardship in life. Usually those are the result of something pretty horrible happening. I'm not saying it wasn't horrible. What I am saying is that oftentimes what those kind of stories reveal is at the heart of it, there was not the conviction that God is good. There was a variation of the lie. Something like God is a a cosmic businessman who has promised you the commodity of an enjoyable and good life in exchange for your obedience. And when that didn't happen, you left him. You're done doing business. Or you've believed a variation that he's an angry tyrant. And the only reason he's letting you take another breath is to give you a chance to do what he says without questioning. This is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, believed about God really before he became a genuine Christian. In fact, uh, in his own words, he said, "I, I tried my hardest to obey God, but in my heart, I murmured against him. I hated him. And so you've got these variations. And what you end up with is a pale imposter, 
of the robust joy and faith of a true disciple of Jesus. There are plenty of people who love the culture of Christianity, but not Christ himself. They like maybe the morality of, I mean, this is less and less common as time goes on, but maybe they enjoy the morality of it or the sense of community or you want to raise your kids and have them understand some decency or whatever it might be, but God himself remains at arm's length and he's like an acquaintance you might say hi to in the hallway, but you will not get closer than that because you're convinced that he's not as good as he says or as everyone else here seems to be pretending him to be. There's a, there's a song uh, written by a band I enjoy. The band is called The Classic Crime. And uh, they, re- they wrote a song called Glass Houses. And it's all about this, this faith that's built entirely on me, not a right view of God. And the song's actually written for people who are a little bit more self-righteous, but this particular section of the lyrics uh, could apply to the idea of trying to follow or obey God, trying to be committed to him without actually believing that he's good. And so I've got some lyrics here on the screen. And if you've heard the song, I apologize because I'm not singing for you. Um, (laughs) He got hung up, you got hung up on the outside. You fake like you're living the good life. But death and decay on the inside just add pride and hate to your long list of crimes. And here's the poignant line. Somewhere deep down, you know the difference between love and following orders. And externally, guys, it might look entirely the same. But somewhere deep down, we know the difference, don't we? Between love and following orders. And if you're a parent, you tell your child to do something, it's pretty obvious what's begrudging obedience and what's a a loving obedience. Now, Again, of course, there's going to be times when we need to obey God over against our sinful will. We'll want to do something, we'll know what's wrong, and we're going to have to like, say no to ourselves. Okay? But at the end of the day, Jesus says, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. John says his commands are not burdensome. Again, even in those moments, there's this undergirding love for God. We're not operating out of fear of an angry tyrant or some kind of business transaction or whatever else it might be. We are operating out of a a love for him. Man, my prayer this morning has been that we as a church, that you would be convinced, oh God, may we be convinced of the kindness, the graciousness, the beauty, the loveliness, the tenderness, the compassion, the altogether goodness of you, God that you would be convinced of this. God is good. (laughs) I feel like I have nothing else to say than just to say it over and over and over again that he is good. And you know why? Because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Taste and see. And once you do that, you'll say with the psalmist, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd I'd rather have one day with him than a thousand without. So have you? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you still refusing him? You're convinced that he's gonna take more than you could give, that he's gonna promise more than he could deliver. Believe in the goodness of God. Believe that he actually 
cares for you, that he is working for your good if you are in Christ. And if you want to know what he's like, if you're one of those people that says, prove to me that he's good, look at Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, the most selfless, the most caring, the wisest and most powerful person to ever walk this planet, gave his life for you, And he had nothing to gain from it in terms of economic benefit, in terms of, he had nothing to gain other than you and a relationship with you. So, what happens after you taste and you see? Let's go back to Costco. What are they hoping you do after you taste and see? You buy it. That's what David's hoping take a bite, take the meal, go all in. Have you ever been, you know, you thought you were just kind of thirsty and you took a sip and you realized, oh, I'm real thirsty. And and you just start chugging. This is what happens is you take one drink, you realize this is, I'm going, I've got to have more. I've got to have more. And there's a holy discontent that will drive you to always want more of him. And you say, again, with the psalmist, David, he's just got all these words and expressions for it. As the deer pants for God, so my soul, or as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. When can I go and be with my God? I desire to be with him. I long to be with him. I I refuse to be content with a shallow and superficial knowledge of God. I desire to know him deeply. That kind of thinking, that heart, that is the heart of a true disciple. That's what drives all true Christian spirituality is a holy love and a desire for God that that ignites an ongoing pursuit of him. And that begins the journey that you and I refer to as discipleship. And so I didn't introduce it at the very beginning, but this is the first in a four-part series on discipleship. And I'm making the point right now that the journey of discipleship starts at the trailhead of taste and see with an experience of the goodness of God and then it moves from there. We'll talk later about what happens if you try to start somewhere else. But uh, I want to at this point go to a different verse. It's again in your worship folder on the screen. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And what this verse is going to do is this is going to help us kind of zoom back and from a bird's eye view, take in kind of the full concept of what discipleship is. And so let me just read the verse for you. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we just did something that I hate when preachers do. And that is we read one verse completely out of context. Um, So let me me explain to you, because if it feels like, okay, how does this connect to what we were just talking about? Uh, Let me zoom back for just a moment. Uh, What Paul, who's the one who wrote this verse, is doing is he's using a story from the Hebrew scriptures to tell us what faith in Jesus is like. And so let me tell you the story that he's referring to. Um, There's this 
pretty big character in the Old Testament named Moses. Big, what I mean by big is important. And when Moses would go to meet with God, he would come back down to the people, and after being with God, his face would be glowing, like shining. So much so that it kind of freaked the people out. And they're like, whoa, we can't, we can't look at you. They're scared. And so he puts this veil over his face so that he can talk to them. And then when he would go meet with God, he'd remove that veil. And so God, no veil, and then come talk to the people, you've got a veil. Okay? Now, the effect is now there's a, there's a barrier between the people and between the glory of God. They don't want to see it. They can't see it. And so they put this veil over Moses' face. Now, what Paul is doing is he's going to take this imagery, and this, he's starting, if you have your Bible open, you can kind of be following along with what I'm saying. He starts up in verse 7. So what he's doing is he's saying, all right, everybody now has this barrier, has a veil. You might even think about it like a blindfold. And so they can't see the glory of God because they don't want to. Okay? To, to go back to the Psalm 34 metaphor of food, you don't have spiritual taste buds. You can't taste and see. You can't see the glory of God. Now, Paul says that when someone comes to Jesus, puts their faith in him, and begins to follow him, that veil is removed. And so now, for anyone who's a follower of Jesus, they have access to God in the same way that Moses did. Because Moses was the only other person who could approach God, no veil. Okay? Here's what that means. Look at what he says in verse 18. We all. So not just one person anymore, but every person who's a believer in Jesus now have access to God in the same way that Moses did. And so every single one of you in this room, if you believe in Jesus, if you are a follower in Jesus, you get the mind-blowing privilege of seeing and savoring the glory of God in a way that no one else in the Old Testament got to. And Paul is saying that as you do that with an unveiled face, you contemplate his glory, you're changed by it. And our glory is different than Moses because Moses' glory would decrease over time. Our glory, you see it says ever increasing, or some translations say from one degree of glory to another, literally it's from glory to glory, It's an upward trend. Why is that? Because you're being transformed. You're being changed by his glory. Moses became like God by beholding God. And Paul's making the point that the same thing happens to believers in Jesus. Now, as we start to comprehend the, with our finite minds the infinite expanse of God's goodness and greatness. That's just another way of saying beholding or contemplating the Lord's glory. When we start to get that, even at small degrees, then we start to become like him. And so that means that we're gonna actually start to think differently. We're gonna start to act differently. We're gonna start to speak and feel differently. And the differently he's saying, is more like Jesus. 
you're gonna start to think, act, speak, and feel more like Jesus than you did when you were wearing that veil. You're gonna be a better person. But not just a better person, a different person. True, deep, long-lasting, Christian discipleship will not happen apart from this holy obsession with God, a holy fascination with his glory. There's a short story written uh, quite a while ago by a guy named Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I think it perfectly illustrates this concept. The story is called The Great Stone Face, and it's set in a valley somewhere in the rural northeast of the United States, and overlooking this valley, there's a mountain with a rock formation that looks like a human face. And the human face is, it's a man's face who is just benevolent and wise and good. And it just seems to kind of exude warmth and affection and wisdom and goodness. Now in the valley, a boy is born and he's four, five, six years old, and he notices, like everyone else in the valley has done, he notices the rock formation. And so he asks his mother about it, and she tells him the same story that her mother told her when she was a child, who heard it from her mother, and on and on, as, back as, anyone, as far back as anyone could remember. And so there's this kind of timeless local legend surrounding the rock face, and it said that one day there would be a person who would come back to the valley and that person's face would look like the rock face and that person would be, the way it phrased it was, the greatest and most noble personage of his time. So would be a, a wonderful person and everyone would love this person and be benefited by being around him. And they would enjoy him and they would learn from him and he'd be just this great, great person. Now like all kinds of local legends like Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster, you have your enthusiasts or weirdos who are, you know, looking for evidence and every person who comes to the town, they're kind of seeing if this is going to be it and they're kind of always holding out hope. And then there's the cynics who either by disappointment or just for whatever reason think it's nothing more than kind of a silly tale. But the boy is captivated by this legend. And so... During his childhood, he would spend hours a day staring at this rock formation, just thinking about the person to come. And if you know how hard it is to get a child to sit for hours and think, <laughs> you'll know what a big deal this is. This boy is just daily thinking and waiting and considering the, wise, the wisdom of this person and the, and the uh, niceness of them and, and just who could it be. And he himself never considered himself to be the guy. He always wanted to be the one to help discover him. So he kind of makes it his personal quest to help uncover this hero for his own good and for everyone else's. So the boy becomes a teenager and continues to meditate, to contemplate, to look at the rock face and just think on it and the teenager becomes a man and he gets a job as a farmer because he wants a job that he can look at the rock face and so every once in a while he's just working the farm and he stands for a moment to take a break and looks at the rock face thinking waiting 
contemplating, waiting for this guy. And someone shows up to the valley. This wealthy businessman. He's got a lot of money. He'd been gone. He, and he just seems to be this really great guy. And, and at first, he claims to be the fulfillment of this rock face. And so everyone starts following him and, and seeing what's going on and, and trying to get around him. But it becomes clear that this guy's got deep character flaws. And he's not, he's not it. Well, sometime later, a war hero comes back, strong, good leader, but doesn't have the kindness of the great stone face, and so he's not it either. You've got a poet, a writer who comes, and he's, he's wise, got a lot of insight, very original, but he doesn't have the, just the experience and the, the, the humility it takes. And so the whole town goes through these you know, ups and downs, these strings of disappointments. But the whole time, this man, he's holding out hope. And even after the string of disappointments, he's still holding out hope. And years go by, and his body just gets too weak to be a farmer. And so he becomes a preacher, which tells you which Nathaniel Hawthorne thought of preachers. <laughs> but he becomes a preacher, and his congregation loves him. The town loves him. And they decide, let's do for the summer a sunset series. And so he would preach Sunday morning, and then Sunday in the evenings, he'd preach out in the fields as the sun was setting, just outside the church building. And one particular Sunday evening, he was preaching, and the rock face is, is right behind him. And he comes to a point in the sermon where he's just... He's particularly moved by his love for the people before him and what he's about to share. And as that happens, this expression comes over his face through no intent of his own. And someone in the audience notices him and the rock face right behind him. And, and at that moment realizes the legend, this is it. This is the great stone face. And he, <laughs> he interrupts the sermon. He yells out and he says, look, it's the great stone face. It's come true. And the guy, as if to fulfill the legend more in his own humility, tells the guy, nicer than this, but shut up. And he takes him by the arm and he leads him out and he says, it has to be someone humbler and wiser than me. As if to fulfill in that characteristic because the great stone face could do nothing different. Okay, the point is that the man became what he valued. Nathaniel Hawthorne's making the point that what we behold is what we become. One commentator referred to it as transformation by vision. And so just, just as the man stares at the rock face, you and I, we don't stare at an interesting rock formation with a local legend surrounding it. We stare at the rock of ages. We stare at Jesus Christ himself. And as we contemplate his glory and his attributes and what he's like, and as we pray to him, we become transformed like him. And so what happens is that over time, you 
don't just grow, you are transformed. The verb here in 2 Corinthians is the same word from which we get the word metamorphosis, the process that a caterpillar undergoes to become a butterfly. It's not, discipleship is not simply self-help with a spiritual label. It's not just a process of growth where you, where you just get a more mature version of the same thing. You get a different thing. It is a transformation, not just a growth process. And so, and so my goal is that we would see this morning the beauty and the goodness of God that we would start to be transformed. Because if we start this journey of discipleship, if we try to start that anywhere else, then we're gonna be off by miles down the road. If you start the story or the journey of discipleship by examining yourself and what kind of spiritual habits you might need to cultivate, what kind of Bible reading you need to do, what kind of friendships you need to have, what kind of X, Y, Z you need to do, to be a better disciple, and those are good questions, and we will address them later on, but if we start there, we're on a different journey. That's not the journey of discipleship. Now, don't hear me say that we don't have any role in the process, that there's not any work for us to do. There certainly is, um, but it's after. It's after we've tasted and we've seen. The order here is so important. Uh, let me show you one more verse and then we'll wrap up. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2-3. through three. It says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So even after you taste, there is a process. There's a process that you need to actually crave, not just desire, but crave Pure spiritual milk. And in the context of that verse, it's pretty obvious that that's the teaching of God's word. Okay, And so there is things we have to do. We have to learn from God's word how to be this different new person. Okay, But that happens after we've tasted and we've seen. So here's the layout for the series. Today is the taste and see day. Today's the Costco sample day. Okay, It's where we lay the foundation of discipleship, and that is the beholding of God's glory. And the next three weeks are going to be the spiritual, pure spiritual milk part of things. We're going to look at three different aspects of discipleship, and we're going to see what God's word has to teach us on each one of those aspects. And my hope is that each week we would be reminded, we'd be encouraged by the goodness and the beauty of God, and then it would also be very practical of how do we respond to that goodness. How do we, because of how good and great God is, how do we react? What does that process of transformation actually look like in practical terms? So we'll be talking, we will be talking about specific spiritual habits. And I will make suggestions on Bible reading and friendships and all that kind of stuff. All of it with the understanding that this is a process driven by a love for God, an intense love for God and a desire for his glory. So, let me summarize this, try to summarize the whole sermon in this one sentence so you can kind of wrap it up in a bow and take it home. Discipleship, it's a process of transformation ignited and driven 
by a fascination with God. It's a process of transformation ignited and driven by a fascination with God. And if you haven't ever, then I want to invite you this morning to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm with David. This poor man cried out and the Lord delivered me. And, And I'll just share with my own experience. He's good and I'm confident that you put your trust and your faith in him. You will find him to be good as well. So if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that. If you have done that, it's easy to forget. Life can be hard, and you can start believing those lies without even thinking it. And so I may ask you to return to the goodness of God, to taste again, to see again, to take a step back and get your eyes off of yourself and on to Him. And remember the goodness of God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Yahweh, we affirm this morning what your word says, that you are good, that we have no good apart from you, that you are the father of lights, you're the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so, Father, I ask this morning for spiritual taste buds. I ask that you would remove the veil that you would help us to taste and see that you are good. God, would you please replace the lies that we believe in the core of our being about your goodness? Would you please replace those lies with the truth? Would you draw us into a deeper love, a deeper desire, God, even an obsession with you? Let us not be content with a nominal or a shallow faith. God, would you please be our everything? Remove the things in our hearts and our lives that keep us from you. And I ask that in Jesus' holy and powerful name. Amen.